Welcome to Weekend Ag Matters from the Iowa Agribusiness Radio Network. Join us for an in-depth look at Iowa agriculture. Here's your host, Mark Magnuson. Welcome into this week's edition of Weekend Ag Matters, brought to you in part by the Iowa Soybean Association. I'm Mark Magnuson. Riley Smith, Russ Parker, and Dustin Huffman will join us later on in the show. As for right now, let's start with a quick look at the news headlines. It has been one week since the Iowa Department of Agriculture and Land Stewardship confirmed that we have had our first positive case of highly pathogenic avian influenza this fall in Dallas County. It's the first case that's been reported since May 2nd. It confirms something that we've been afraid of for the last few weeks, and that is the possible return of bird flu to the state of Iowa. Just like in 2015, the disease has been spread by migratory birds throughout agricultural flocks in the state. Unlike in 2015, we've gotten through the springtime relatively un. Unscathed. That's not to say that bird flocks weren't put down, but it is to say that the number of affected birds was much lower. The first time around, we only dealt with it in the springtime and early summer, and then it was gone. The second go-around has people fearing that this year could be worse than 2015. Also, the share of acreage for major cash crops, wheat, corn, soybeans, and cotton that are planted using conservation tillage has increased over the past two decades in the United States. USDA's Economic Research Service reported the data earlier this week. Farmers report employing conservation tillage on the majority of acres of wheat at 68%, 76% on corn acres, and 74% on soybeans. Conservation tillage, which includes no-till and mulch till, reduces soil disturbance and preserves more crop residue relative to conventional tillage. That's all the time we have for news headlines this week. For more news information and headlines, visit iowaagnet.com. It's time to turn things over to Russ Parker now with his faith-based food for thought here on Weekend Ag Matters. Before I got my driver's license, I remember my dad asking me to sit in the front seat between him and mom on one of our trips. And he handed me a road map. His request was simple. Tell me how to get to where we're going. Well, it didn't take me long with some help from mom to be able to read and give dad driving directions based on what I saw on the road map. Being able to read a map has been a part of my traveling toolbox ever since. I also recall being at mom and dad's house on the back porch in Blairstown, New Jersey. I was newly married. I was in my mid-20s, so probably 40 plus years ago and saw two people with backpacks coming down the road that went up into the woods back behind my dad's house. Strange, I thought, until we had some conversation. They were hiking the Appalachian Trail, which was behind the house, and based on their map, saw that there was an artesian well at my parents' house, and they needed water. So they followed their map to the house and found what they were looking for. I think they may have even camped in the yard that night. Fast forward to today, maps as we know them exist on our cell phones, generated through GPS, simply saying an address or business name will generate almost instantly the route needed, complete with step-by-step directions and your choice of the voice giving those directions. And this is not only applicable to driving, but almost any activity such as fishing, hiking, hunting, and there are a myriad of other applications. And as with any technology, there are times when one just needs to use either common sense or apply some good listening skills. Having a sense of what direction to go is a gift. 
Some seem to have a built-in map, and others can get so challenged that the result becomes the proverbial walking in circles. And we also know that not all of us take the same path. We have different criteria. The fastest route, the most efficient route, the most picturesque, or needing to make stops along the way, a combination of routes. Whatever path in life we take, there was one route to eternity, sometimes described as the straight and narrow path. In John 14, 6, Jesus describes the direction clearly and truthfully. I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except by me. Food for thought, I hope. This is Russ Parker. Have a blessed day. Thank you, Russ. That's it for segment one on this week's episode of Weekend Ag Matters. Coming up next after this short break, Riley Smith will speak with state climatologist Justin Glisson. This is Weekend Ag Matters. Every detail matters when building a winning game plan. That's why the Cyclones and Hawkeyes rely on better, cleaner now biodiesel to power their team buses on game days delivering success on the field, in the field, and in the environment. Make biodiesel part of your game plan by visiting IASoybeans.com. Biodiesel. Request it. Grow it. Use it. This message brought to you by the Iowa Soybean Association and the Soybean Checkoff. Welcome back to Weekend Ag Matters. Here's Riley Smith. We're back again this week to talk with Iowa State climatologist Dr. Justin Glisson about this week's U.S. drought monitor. Uh, first off, Justin, what are some of the changes that we've seen in the drought monitor from last week's data? Hi, Riley. Good to be with you. So, yeah, we, we've seen some degradation in western Iowa. We did see widespread rainfall over two days last week, or earlier this week, I should say, that uh, was beneficial in terms of soil moisture, uh, but also getting some stream flows slightly up. So that's where we've seen status quo or no change across much of the map. Now we turn to western Iowa where it missed out on uh, pretty much of that rainfall. We've seen expansion of uh, D2 conditions in southwestern Iowa across the Missouri border and then across the Minnesota border in northwestern Iowa. And then an, uh, an expansion of a little, little bit of D4 exceptional drought around Sioux City and Woodbury County. Uh, you look at Woodbury County and Sioux City's period of record from National Weather Service Co-op Station goes back to 1896. Uh, they're about 50% of normal precipitation for year to date, and this is the driest year on record. So extremely dry conditions up in northwestern Iowa, uh, and hence where that D4 category was introduced. That's the first uh, widespread introduction of D4 uh, since uh, 2013, the 2011 to 2013 drought. The highest extent of D4 during the 2012 drought was about two and a half uh, percent. We're currently at two tenths of a, of a percent. So very small, but it is significant for that introduction. Right. And of course, last weekend, we also saw those uh, very strong winds, strong, consistent winds. And uh, that created, with those dry conditions, a pretty high fire risk. And I was back home in southwest Iowa over the weekend, and we saw a pretty decent fire start up in Montgomery County. 
you know, how is this fire risk going to continue? Are we going to see maybe these windy conditions again? Or is this colder, wetter signal that we're seeing going to, you know, help with that a lot? Yeah, so we think we think of last week into this week uh, with that strong cold front that came through that actually brought us the rainfall in front of that uh, system. Very strong winds out of the south and southwest dew points, uh, dew point temperatures down in the single digits. That is extremely dry air. So you couple that with all the dry fuel that we have out there. Fire dangers are, are pretty high this time of year and exceptionally high given how dry things are. So the shift to cooler temperatures, we've also seen an increase in relative humidity. That helps mitigate some of these fire dangers. But yes, we should expect windy days as we move forward. If we look at the outlooks getting into the first week of November, we're seeing a, a, a high probability of warmer temperatures. So this time of year, we should be in the mid 50s during the day. Uh, low to mid 30s overnight. So we'll see uh, slightly above average temperatures there, not exceedingly uh, warm. But we're also seeing an elevated wet signal, which is excellent given that we're, you know, we're starting to wrap up harvest. Uh, but we're also, our subsoil moisture profiles are dry, but not frozen. So any moisture that we can bank before the profiles freeze is excellent news in terms of replenishing subsoil moisture, but also having moisture in the tank for uh, next growing season. Now we know that pretty much the whole state is at some sort of moisture deficit right now. Uh, the rains that we have gotten recently, and then, you know, like you mentioned, there's rain in the forecast as well. As this, uh, how is that going to cut into the deficits that we're seeing right now? So if we look at going back a full year, now we remember this, this drought has been around since 2020. So in the driest parts of the state, we've, we have deficits on the order of 15 to 25 inches. So these types of rainfalls, while good for short-term moisture infiltration, we're gonna need several months, if not more than a year of above average precipitation, snowpack rainfall, whatever moisture we can get to really start to put a dent in those longer term deficits. So the rainfalls that we saw recently and what, we, what we're looking at in the outlooks are good for short-term improvement in the, uh, let's say wetter parts of the state where precipitation deficits are anywhere from four to six inches below average. But again, we're gonna need a long stretch of wet conditions to really uh, start to improve the longer term drought conditions that we've seen across the state. And of course, we're always worrying about the Mississippi River as well. Uh, some people were saying that it saw you know, a good amount of rain that kind of raised the levels a bit, but did that stick around or, and I'm assuming this is the case, did most of it just get absorbed back into the ground? Yeah, that's a great question. So we did see a rebound in stream flows across the state and also the tributaries that feed the Mississippi River. So we did see a re rebound in stream flow and um, river levels. But a lot of that moisture, as you mentioned, is soaking into the, the soil profile given how dry things are. So you need two things to happen. You need to have regular rainfalls uh, to saturate the soil profile, at least the top soil profile, so you can get runoff from these events. When you get runoff, that runoff goes into the streams. You see rising stream flows, and then those streams that feed the Mississippi uh, start to uh, raise its level. So again, we're going to need several months of uh, above average precipitation and a good spring melt to really raise uh, the Mississippi. 
All right. And what else has been going on in the state of Iowa, you know, as far as weather and climate is concerned? Well, so, you know, speaking of drought, we've just finished a first draft of the Iowa drought plan, and this will be used to address drought situations in the future and help us have a coordinated effort across the state to address drought and the impacts that we see for our stakeholders, our farmers and our municipalities and rural areas of the state. Uh, So we're also in terms of weather looking like a La Nina uh, will hang around into winter. And this will be the third winter in which we've had the La Nina phase of the El Nino Southern Oscillation. So again, this is a large scale weather pattern that impacts where thunderstorms set up over the Pacific. Typical La Nina years in winter, uh, we see a near normal snowpack for all the years that we've had La Nina. If you break those apart into a weak La Nina versus strong La Ninas, We're on the weaker side and in weaker La Nina winters, historically we've seen above average snowpack. So that could be good news if we get, um, if we get those snowpacks and then for spring melt and infiltration of uh, soil moisture. All right, Justin, well, lots of great information today Uh, for those of our viewers and our listeners who would like to get in touch and talk about Iowa's climate and some of the issues it may present. How can they get in touch? Okay, so three ways. Just go on Google, uh, Google Iowa Climatology Bureau. It'll bring you to our webpage and our contact information. My direct office line is 515-281-8981. And my email address is justin.glisson, G-L-I-S-A-N, at iowaagriculture.gov. That again was Iowa State Climatologist Dr. Justin Glisson. And that's it for segment two of this week's show. When we come back, Dustin will wrap up as he talks with Iowa Ag Secretary Mike Nag. This is Weekend Ag Matters. October is pork month, and in Iowa, we have no shortage of pork producers to celebrate. In all, there are 147,105 Iowa jobs created by the pork industry through direct, indirect, and induced jobs, and those jobs in turn create $8.64 billion in labor income. Make sure you support one of Iowa's most important industries by enjoying some farm-raised Iowa pork this month. This message is brought to you by your friends at the Iowa Agribusiness Radio Network. Welcome back to Weekend Ag Matters. Here's your host, Dustin Hoffman. Welcome back to Weekend Ag Matters from the Iowa Agribusiness Radio Network. I'm Dustin Huffman. It's time we sit down with Iowa Agriculture Secretary Mike Nag for our monthly chat with the Secretary to talk about things that are going on in the ag industry. So here's Secretary Nag. Well, we're talking right now with Iowa Agriculture Secretary Mike Nag. And Secretary, it's uh, been an eventful month here in October. How are things going out there? Oh, it certainly has. And I always love this time of year. You know, it's it's when you get to see the culmination of the growing season, all that you've put into it. Uh, of course, we, the top um, headline continues to be weather and drought. And, and so then what really is out there? And I think you've definitely got some places that are seeing yield reduction because of that drought. But I continue to hear folks saying better than I expected. And uh, that's that's uh, always good to hear. And uh, of course, we're we're just really grinding it out now, really picking up pace. And uh, but it is a wonderful time of year. I, I love it. You know, I know you mentioned drought, and of course, some people saying it was better than expected. I mean, how are you hearing people coming through that area, especially those those western areas that were under drought for so long this year? 
Yeah, and unfortunately, we actually just we hit a milestone of sorts in the drought monitor last week, which is that 100% of the state of Iowa is abnormally dry. So that would be D0 to D3. Now, D0 is not technically drought, but it is headed for that. And so 100% of the state. But in those areas where you've had that kind of persistent D2, D3 drought, we're definitely hearing about yield reductions. And so that's that you know, Western Iowa, Northwest Iowa. And then as you get down into Southeastern Iowa as well, they've really uh, struggled here. So, uh, you know, again, uh, though better than expected, I think that's a testament to a timely rain. And we saw that last year, right? A timely rain resulted in us setting a new record for corn yields. Um, I'm hopeful that as Eastern Iowa and Northeastern Iowa comes in, that their numbers are looking really, really good. And uh, of course, we just have to get through this harvest season to figure that out for sure. But it is concerning that here we sit at the you know end of the growing season, 100% of the state D0 to D3 drought, knowing that we, we've got to see a lot of precipitation between now and spring to really get off on the right foot. So I'm going to ask, how are things looking at the Nag homestead? How's the, how's the harvest going there? Uh, very blessed. You know, we, uh, uh, we were able to catch some rain as we got through July and into August. And so we're feeling very good about the yields that we're seeing. We, we certainly uh, had thought that it might be a, a real troublesome thing given how dry it was in, in June. So I can report that we're, uh, we're nearly complete with harvest. And uh, of course, there's a lot that gets done after the combine is parked, uh, as folks know. But uh, we've really been blessed this year at, at our place. You know, and you mentioned those things that still have to be done after the combine's parked. And a lot of people look at fall fertilizer applications and right. stuff like that. Obviously, with numbers not being great in some areas, I mean, there's a lot of worry going on about what inputs are going to mean for 23, especially if we don't see any more of the, any more, you know, moisture coming to the ground. This could really spell some trouble. You know, it could. And I, I like to tell folks that who aren't directly involved in the ag community or the farm community that, you know, yes, you may be harvesting this crop right now, but you are already thinking about making orders and booking things for next growing season. Fertilizer being one of those very important things. And of course, I am hearing some, uh, you know, in some places, folks having some issues actually getting their hands on the supply that they need. And then, you know, as we've been saying all along, it's it's a, can I get it? And then what's the price? And that, you know, it's a two-step piece there. But I think just given how dry it is, uh, that there's also need, people need to be thinking about that and whether they want to uh, go ahead this fall or push that into spring. And what does that mean from a supply chain standpoint as well? So a lot of decision-making going on uh, right now is, as we know is, is always the case. Uh, but here's what I've been saying generally is, we can look at this market and know that things look pretty good from a price standpoint, but there's a lot of uncertainty and a lot of things that folks are having to manage risk around as you get into next year. So switching gears a little bit, obviously with the return of migratory birds through the area, obviously we're starting to hear more uh, bird flu cases returning in some of our neighboring states. And even across the country, we're starting to hear some pretty large numbers of animals being affected. You know, we got through the spring relatively unscathed here in the state. We did get, obviously did get hit, and we don't want to lose any birds. But we thought things were, went better than we did in 2015. How concerned are we for the return this fall if it could be, you know, upping those numbers? Yeah, unfortunately, here we go again. Um, you know, in 2015, we didn't have this return. When the birds came back south, they had shed the virus and, and we did not see that that follow-on uh, you know, situation like we're seeing now. And 
really, we started to watch, of course, what was happening, especially in Minnesota. Uh, but the Dakotas, as those birds were starting to push south again, sure enough, there were cases. And so, yes, we did just last week announce that we once again have a positive case. It's a small backyard flock. It's, it's still concerning because it tells you the virus is here. Uh, but it is maybe fortunate from a commercial standpoint that it's not in one of the large facilities. Uh, but we hadn't had a case, a new case since uh, May 2nd. And so we'd been several months without that. Uh, it has sort of reinvigorated uh, our efforts to close the gaps on some of the improvements that we need to make around our response. We all were hoping that we would do a look back, lessons learned, and then maybe not have to apply those for several years. Unfortunately, uh, it's taken on some new intensity because we know that uh, the likelihood of us having to respond to more cases this fall is is growing by the day. And so uh, it's just a time to have uh, heightened alert from a biosecurity standpoint, put those lessons uh, learned to work and uh, improve our ability to respond and then hope and pray uh, that we just don't have to deal with it, certainly like we did this spring. You know, when we talk about this spring, obviously we were concerned about it spreading, especially so there was there was a moratorium on on shows with birds. We were mm -hmm. concerned we may not see them at county and state fairs. We got through that. I mean, obviously right now the fairs are far off in the distance. What, what kind of steps are we looking at uh, that IDALs may be recommending for these producers? You know, right now we're monitoring all of that very closely. And, and you're right, we're through really the, the fair season and, uh, you know, the uh, you know, smaller number of exhibitions, those types of things going on. So uh, we're going to take a risk-based approach to this like we always do. Uh, again, given that we've seen it in a small backyard uh, flock to start with, uh, I think right now we're, we're comfortable leaving things, uh, you know, situation normal. But just know that we will once again put every, every tool on the table that we need to to try to contain the spread. So at this point, I've got no plans to implement uh, the measures like we did in terms of prohibiting exhibitions, but it's on the table and we'll certainly watch that as the, as the fall plays out here. All right. So let's move on to something a little more positive again, and that's the choose Iowa program. Tell us about that and what's new there. Uh, so excited about choose Iowa and uh, the opportunities that we've got. We're going to be launching more formally the choose Iowa program, which is a state branded program for Iowa made, Iowa raised, Iowa grown food and ag products. Um, and uh, really this is a convergence of uh, a massive unprecedented supply chain disruption that caused a lot of people to start thinking, well, maybe I should shop local or how do I shorten the distance from the farm to the plate? And, uh, and then there's this growing trend that's been developing over the last couple of years about folks wanting to shop local. And the convergence of that has brought us to this point where we are launching uh, the Choose Iowa effort and uh, create an umbrella where this will benefit ultimately consumers because they'll be able to identify those things that are made and grown here in Iowa, but also think of all of the market opportunities for producers and processors in the state of Iowa. So thrilled about that. Stay tuned. There's going to be a lot more coming on Choose Iowa. But uh, one component of that program is these grants that we we uh, offer. This will be the second round of grants. Uh, we had an overwhelming response last year. We had $250,000 and we had $2 million worth of, of applications and they were good applications. Uh, so we know that there's a huge demand for this. Uh, the cap on grants is $25,000. It's a one-to-one -one match of, of uh, private investment with the with this grant. And this is a competitive grant process too. We only want to fund the best. 
and we want to fund projects that will result in a significant increase in the amount of uh, Iowa-grown, Iowa-made products. So uh, folks can find out more at iowaagriculture.gov. Applications will be due December 15th. So uh, pay attention to that deadline. We sure would love to have another round of great uh, project applications. Now, I know you mentioned that obviously there was the $250,000 available and $2 million worth of grant applications. Is there any efforts you see coming maybe in the next legislative session where IDALs may ask for more funding from the state to, to, to fund more of those kind of initiatives? Great question. And so we really, this program runs in parallel with the, the uh, grants for meat processors that actually is administered by the Economic Development Authority. And so there's that. And so we'll push any applications that are meat processing related over into that. Uh, we're running the Choose Iowa program parallel to that. Actually, we did uh, seek additional funding. We actually will have $460,000 worth of grant monies available this time around. So we've already seen an increase. And again, when the legislature is allocating dollars and they've got lots of requests that come in, we want to be able to show a very direct link to increased economic activity, increased market opportunities. And we can clearly do that with these Choose Iowa grants. So uh, we think it's we're very comfortable going and asking for additional dollars because the proof is there that one, there's high demand and two, great results. But that's also why we're going to make sure that it's a competitive program that only funds the best uh, applications so that we can, with a uh, you know, in good faith, go back to the legislature and show them exactly what this investment resulted in. All right. Well, Secretary, we thank you so much for this month's update and look forward to talking to you again here in November. I'm looking forward to it. I'm looking forward to putting a, a bow on harvest. And remember, stay safe out there, everybody. And uh, uh, we'll talk again next month. That again was Iowa Agriculture Secretary Mike Nag here on Weekend Ag Matters. And that wraps up our show. You can find all our content online at iowaagnet.com. For Riley Smith, Russ Parker, and Mark Magnuson, I'm Dustin Huffman. We thank you for listening. We'll see you next weekend on Weekend Ag Matters.